I'm Matt Serdahl. Welcome to Mythic Christ, reawakening mythic imagination in earth, the self, and the divine. Mythic Christ podcast offers an experiential bridge between imagination, archetype, and sacred story to re-mystify the divine image within, to summon spiritual renewal and action in these times. This is Mythic Christ, reawakening mythic imagination in earth, the self, and the divine. Hey everyone, this is Matt. Welcome to Mythic Christ. I want to give a quick shout out to our newest Patreon supporters, to Liz in the UK, to Lowry in Finland, and to Scott in the United States. Thank you for your support of this vision. It means an incredible amount, and I can't do it without Patreon supporters like you. If you are new to this space and it really resonates with you and you want to support the podcast, including all the work that goes into it and promoting the vision, please consider becoming a patron. It costs as little as $6 a month, and it really helps with the cost and all the time it takes in the studio, editing, and the purchase of books and all the study. If you appreciate the vision and want to support us, find out more at patreon.com slash mythicchrist. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash Mythic Christ. All patrons get access to early release of episodes and a complimentary downloadable guided meditation practice. At higher tiers, patrons also get new unreleased content and bonus episodes, advanced downloadable practices, a complimentary mentoring session with me, and discounts on all upcoming online immersions, including our Awakening Mythic Imagination year-long program. The program is currently full, but there's a waiting list for next September 2023. So you get a whole lot of uh, benefits, and it helps support me in offering this body of work into the world. Thank you so much for your support. If you would like more information about upcoming online mythic immersion programs or the 2023 Awakening Mythic Imagination Eco Depth Year-Long Program, please email me at matt.sirdal, S-Y-R-D-A-L, at mythicchrist.com. Thank you, and so we begin. A New York Times headline in March of 2020, near the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak, read, quote, Coronavirus brings a surge to news sites. Surge. The appetite for information for sound bites that activates something primal in the human psyche. Surge. It is a sense of exponential growth over the last two and a half years, it has surged. Addiction to fear and adrenaline in the collective. Perhaps this allurement to catastrophic trauma like a moth to fire. We have experienced a surge. This appetite has risen up in the collective. In the initial weeks of the pandemic, the number of minutes spent by readers at news sites increased 46% from the same period last year. A study of more than a dozen general news websites surged 57% according to Comscore, a media measurement company. Sites like Atlantic, 
Business Insider, New York Times, LA Times, The Wall Street Journal, all doubled the number of visits, largely due to coronavirus-related articles. In our age of QAnon and archetypal fantasy, we are still riding the high waters of fear, of adrenaline. The daily news and the social media cycle carries the freight of a foment, a fever pitch, almost a religious-like zeal. John Micklethwaite, editor-in-chief of Bloomberg News, said, quote, Suddenly it matters enormously what the facts are. It matters enormously, end quote. We swim frantically to the small leaking boat of facts when overcome by this unseen, inexplainable, irrational, instinctual surge. Yes, there is a certain logic to the language of fear that any journalist knows well how to wield to get eyeballs, to get likes, to get more page visits or duration spent on any site. One needs to know the art and the craft of fear poetry. What specific words tap into that unconscious instinctive layer in each of us? That reaction, that fight-or-flight, adrenaline rush. What images excite the reptilian brain in all of us? What Jung or Freud might have called the thanatos, the unconscious death wish. So here's an exercise. When you spend your in-between moments, your liminal minutes and hours in the morning over coffee looking at your phone, swiping your screen, before your next business meeting or right after lunch or in your car, just before you set your alarm at night. Those moments where you scan Facebook, the news cycle, articles that capture your attention. Notice the language being used. Notice those words that strike a nerve, that enhance your connection to read further. Those images that incite anger or fear. Notice those words that capture your eye. Notice those somatic sensations, those shifts in your awareness. Words like death toll, surge, Pandemic, accusation, execution, war, fear, rampant wildfires. This fear poetry uncovers one thing, that surge is a deep archetypal and somatic experience. Surge is this unconscious flow welling up of a whole range of instinctual and somatic sensation and energy rising. In fact, the old Latin surgere literally means to rise. This word rose on the tidal surge of time like a small ship through the channels of the old French word surgeon. Into the late 15th century, where we have the word today, surge, that means fountain or rising stream. To rise and fall on a swell with great force, surge. There is something instinctual, something archetypal, something mythic and yet fearfully unconscious about this word image. You might feel your breath surge. 
your chest as it rises and falls, rolling across the darkness of space and time, a calm surface rippling into heaving breaths up and down, rising and falling. The great unpredicted surge of a storm, the contraction and expansion of the cosmos. rising and falling. You might imagine yourself adrift at sea, rising and riding the great swell of vast chaotic waters, submitted to the mercy of tempest, the great subterranean movement of unconscious power, the heaving of the land itself, shaken, cracking by great tectonic forces. Sir, sir is an old fragment, meaning that which is under, beneath, dark, unseen, unconscious. It is related to the prefix sub, meaning, quote, from below, moving up, quote, and also rego, which means to stretch. It's linked to this ancient Proto-Indo-European root of the word regent, which means to rule. So surge, in a sense, is that power reaching up from below, bubbling up like a fountain stream. Surge is the fear of what is below, that which is unknown, uncontrollable, a power that overwhelms, that overwhelms the senses, the ego, the collective psyche of an entire people, resulting in a total loss of control, a possession by the irrational and the unconscious. Surge is also represented by the great creation myth and archetypal apocalyptic imagery of this primordial flood. Surge as an image speaks to the energy, the force of the archetype, a flooding of the unconscious by powers unseen but felt, feared, longed for. We're going to explore this archetype of the flood, one of the great primordial archetypes of the unconscious, the flood. Almost every creation myth has a story of a flood, from the Babylonian creation myth of Tiamat and Marduk to uh, the great Hebrew uh, story of Noah and the ark. This flood is the primordial waters, the destruction and new creation of these catastrophic archetypal energies that represent the unconscious. In ancient cosmology, there were the world was often seen as three-tiered. There was an upper world, a middle world, and an underworld. And the middle world was actually quite fragile. It was often pictured as a disk or a flat uh, plane where the earth rose up out of the primordial seas, which was envisioned as this sort of vast oceanic chaotic water mass that surrounded the earth. 
Another way of thinking about it is that the world was like this fragile egg, this bubble, surrounded on all sides by the upper world, which was seen also as containing these chaotic waters, and the underworld, which was flowing subterranean waters that could well up at any time as well. And so this cosmos, this world, was this fragile bubble surrounded by water and that it could puncture or rupture at any time. And through these tears or openings, a great deluge would absolutely infiltrate and destroy uh, human order, the world. So this great deluge, this great flood, was viewed as an archetypal image of the unconscious, which would have been understood as the divine and its bivalent mode of being both creative and destructive, of being both good and, in a certain sense, evil, which is what Rudolf Otto refers to as the mysterium tremendum, the mysterium tremendum that allures, that draws both great fear and attraction or allurement. Archetypes are the wild gods, the ancient goddesses, these unseen powers that govern the animate cosmos. The seasons and the virtuous cycle, fate and destiny. Archetypes are prehistoric, they're even pre-human. They're these patterns that live just above the layer of instinct, which makes them so hard to define. One definition would be that archetypes are psychic universals that manifest indirectly through images and ideas and behaviors, and instincts and archetypes form the contents of what Carl Jung discovered as the collective unconscious. In fact, Jung said that uh, archetypes are the, quote, structural forms that underlie consciousness, end quote. To explain the nature of archetypes, Jung made an analogy of the way crystal is formed, that it begins in water, water in its liquid form, before the crystals emerge. And the crystals will emerge with a recognizable form, a pattern, every time, even though that pattern will be unique. It has recognizable structure. And that the potential is only manifested in visible form, only under certain conditions. This concept of archetypes as these first forms, these patterns, goes back to Plato and Aristotle. And for Plato, all phenomena require a pre-existing plan of some sort. This was his idea of um, these original ideas, these, uh, which he got from the sense of primordial image. Every ancient religion and mythology also presupposes this spiritual or this mythic beginning in which a deity has in mind some thought that generates the cosmos. Platonic forms or divine forms, we can only presuppose their existence through the shadows that they cast in a certain sense. So part of the forms are phenomenologically accessible to human beings, part of the plan of creation, and they have a consistent and recognizable shape to them. And we're subject to these forces, these energies, these images, which are by definition beyond our conscious control or contrivance. And this is the territory of the psyche, the psyche that's structured with these underlying patterns. And so when we speak of archetype, we're really speaking to this numinous, autonomous, thonic, mysterious power, this terrain. We are truly speaking of deity, of 
the gods and the goddesses in their wild, formless, unknowable surge. And we've sanitized these great powers, these great energies with theological language and spiritual abstraction. We've even psychologized or internalized uh, them from their instinctive animate roots in the cosmic powers that surge and swirl through all bodies that create and destroy that will in a certain sense to be incarnated to be enfleshed embodied completed contained through these channels of experience of phenomena of consciousness we have domesticated the archetypes Paul in Romans chapter 12 speaks to this archetypal understanding of the divine human relationship. He says, quote, Do not be conformed to the pattern, the schemata of this world age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Conformed, transformed, renewed. These are important words we'll come back to here in a minute. And in his letter to the Philippians, he claims that Christ, who existing in the form of God, the form, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, emptied himself of form, taking on the form of a servant and being made in human likeness, human form. So this wordplay is happening here, and the root of this wordplay is the Greek morphe, which means form or pattern. Morphe is the outer expression, the pattern of behavior, that which is seen, that embodies the inner essence or energy, the image, so that the form is in harmony with the essence, the two are one. And there's this marvelous plasticity to this concept of the mind of Christ in Paul's writings, the consciousness of Christ, this primordial psyche that empties or channels itself into various forms or patterns. And we see it all throughout the Gospels, actually. Jung, in his own right, underwent an evolution in his understanding of the archetypes. Uh, as early as 1912, he called the archetype a primordial image. And in 1917, just five years later, he referred to it as the superpersonal unconscious. In fact, it wasn't until 1919 when the word archetype first appears with his designation, the archetypes of a perception. And in 1934, the more mature Jung developed the phrase archetypes of the collective unconscious, which we have today. But then he felt the need to differentiate the image itself from the unseen reality or energy back in 1946, when he distinguished between the archetype as such and the, quote, archetypal image, end quote. And so we journey back. We journey back to the creation story, to the myth, to the beginning, with these great primordial images. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Elohim says, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, 
form. In the image of God, the Imago Dei and the Septuagint, Elohim created them. The Imago Dei. In the ancient world of Mesopotamia, the gods were represented in molten or graven images, which is where we get the word idol from that sense of molten or graven, which is the word pasal in Hebrew or edelon in Greek. By forming a mold and casting an image of bronze or gold. In Exodus chapter 34, the high priest Aaron takes gold from the people and casts the image of the golden calf and says, quote, These are your gods. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In Exodus 32, we discover the root of idolatry, idol, which comes from Adalon. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it, the image, and sacrificed to it, the molten image, and said, These are your gods. So idolatry could be understood as worshipping the image or the representation. Idolatry could also be understood as possession by the image itself, rather than living in service to the essence of its divine energy, the will of its divine energy. So the taboo against idolatry all the way back in uh, the Torah is quite different, actually, than totemism, which we won't get into here. But to say that in Jungian terms, true worship might be seen as right relationship to the archetypes, to the gods and goddesses, rather than idolatry, which could be seen as a kind of distortion into psychic inflation or possession or a complex of sorts. So the question is, what, relation, what is our relationship to these archetypal energies? In the letter to the Colossians, in chapter 1, the author writes, He, Christ, is the icon, image, of the God invisible or unrepresentable. He, Christ, is the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn, the protokos of all creation. This icon is used of statues of the images of the gods, sometimes the images of the emperor, the likeness throughout the Roman Empire. But the icon, the image, is a mirror-like representation. Image is that which reflects its source. The supreme expression of the pleroma, the fullness of deity. And the concept of icon assumes a prototype of which it not merely resembles, but from which it is drawn. It is more than a shadow or representation, but a replication. So here in the, some of the biblical texts, even the first and second centuries, we're seeing a pattern, a distinction that Jung illustrated between the archetypal image and the archetype as such. And for Jung, Christ, as the Imago Dei, was the archetype of wholeness, of deity, of self, of world, that brought to order the chaotic depths of the flood. In the Christian mythos, then, Jung recognized a deep pattern behind life to stand against the existential chaos. 
the surge of primordial waters. So this creation myth image of order and chaos is precisely the realm of unconscious instinct emerging in the form of archetype. Archetypes are the hyphae, the mycelia that move and weave through the terrain of myth, of mythic consciousness. This creates a lot more mystery, a lot more mystery on what is the nature of consciousness, of what is the nature of the self. It moves from this perspective of localizing consciousness and the self in the ego and the human mind and the body and opens us to an interstitial view of consciousness, these archetypes. Consciousness is um, a weaving and an entangling of autonomous living animate forces and energies that come together in a particular order and structure of selfhood. These patterns then are encoded into our physical structures, sort of like the lattice of frozen water, of crystalline structures. And it's as if they carry information, they carry energy through the image across Time, linking us with our human ancestors, their rituals and ceremonies, their patterns of behavior, linking us even further back with our more than human ancestors. This actually moves into the territory that Rupert Sheldrake explored between the archetypes and what Rupert Sheldrake calls morphic resonance. This creation hymn uh, this hymn of incarnation uh, from Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's also known as the kenosis hymn, kenosis from the Greek, which means emptying. Itself, it follows a mythic structure of the primal nature of incarnation and creation. That image and form that these archetypes empty themselves, that they pour forth their divine waters, this elixir, from more subtle structures into more embodied structures, as if the archetype wants to be embodied to take form. And it is the self-emptying of form and image that allows it to pour into the physical plane, into the body, flowing ever more deeply into the world. Incarnation. When we combine this idea with the concept of kenosis, of emptiness here in the Philippians hymn, we perceive echoes of the ancient image of the primordial waters emptying through the cracks in the bubble <laughs> into form emptying through image as unrecognized energy and power that is perceived as valueless, the form of a servant in human likeness. This self-emptying, this flow of these primordial waters is the archetypal medicine, the strata of these subtle structures out of which the physical world emerges as this medicine of pure energy of pure mystery surges up 
It is channeled through these patterns into our personally lived experience. And it begins to lose some of that numinosity as it enters into the specific conditions of the personal psyche of our lived lives and conscious experience. So it is important from this perspective to honor these great energies that we call God, that we call divine, that archetypes are not personal images of our behavior, of of our personality profile, but that they affect us at the level of feeling and that they can completely overwhelm us in a positive way even. I want to offer a quote from Carl Jung, which is absolutely profound. He says this, quote, Archetypes are like riverbeds which dry up when the water deserts them, but which it can find again at any time. Archetype is like an old watercourse along which the water of life has flowed for centuries, digging a deep channel for itself. The longer it has flowed in this channel, the more likely it is that sooner or later the water will return to its old bed. Archetypes are like riverbeds, channels of water in the desert. One of the great nature-based images for redemption in the Old Testament, in Isaiah for example, is the way in the desert rivers in the desert, a channel of divine energy, of new life to emerge in the dry, desolate places. Isaiah chapter 43 says, quote, I am about to do a new thing. Now it gushes forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, end quote. The prophets lived in those hostile edges between the desert and civilization, sometimes between the corrupt institution and the vital archetypal energy of Yahweh. The prophets knew a thing or two about the water of life, about these great channels. So here we see this visual depiction of landscape that is absolutely necessary to archetype and myth. You might say the myth is the terrain, it's the desert scape. The myth is an ecosystem in its own right. It is filled with high places and valleys of journeys and traveling of arroyos and wadis. And archetypes are these carved channels from seasons and decades and centuries and millennia of rainfall. These channel-like structures that enable the water to flow in these primordial mythic patterns. Seasons of flowing, seasons of drying up and returning to its ancient bed. Archetypal waters must be channeled. Archetypes are not always in the positive sense. They are bivalent. They have a positive pole and a negative pole. It's been said that evil is hidden in every archetype. The flowing waters here are an image not just of the primeval power of cosmic and chaotic forces that the archetypes represent, but when properly channeled, this flowing water and wind symbolizes intense spiritual vision that offers renewal for the world. So I'm going to offer a little reflection on water and immersion. 
immersion after this kind of archetypal theme of the flood. Jesus came from a long line of prophetic visionaries, masters of the techniques of ecstasy. John the Baptist found a channel into the mysteries of the divine through meditation. This ancient rabbinic tradition focused on the imagery from Ezekiel chapter 1 and became the symbolic center for Jewish mysticism called the chariot or the Merkaba tradition, the throne, the divine throne. Ezekiel's vision of the chariot was accompanied by the sound of roaring waters surging with the energy of the primordial beginning. Quote, a crystal rainbow shone above the surreal and frightening spectacle of the beasts. Above that was God's sapphire-like throne, the primeval reality, the vortex of creation itself that was timeless still present and moving with stormy force, end quote. That's from biblical scholar Bruce Chilton's book, Rabbi Jesus. God's spirit was flowing from the chariot throughout all of creation, imaged as a divine wind or ruach in the Hebrew and Aramaic. It was, quote, palpable to Israel in the roaring waters of heaven that surrounded the chariot, as well as in the living waters of the Jordan River. Water was moving and alive. It cleansed and purified the land and its people, end quote. For Chilton, the spirit was the link between the chariot and the kingdom, the one power that descended on Jesus through the tear in heaven's veil. Jesus' ecstatic visionary experience was not serene. <laughs> we often think of visionary states of meditation as, you know, this sense of equanimity or transcendent peace. But not so here. It was a vision of the heavens violently splitting open, the very membrane of the cosmos torn, rolled up like a scroll, and that power flooding down upon him in the form of a dove. This vision, this visionary state, was a sense of, quote, cosmological disruption and potential for transformation, end quote. You see, ancient Jewish cosmology viewed the firmament as the first protective shell, in a certain sense, a hard and watertight dome that protected the earth, which was viewed as transitory and fragile. And any rupture in this bubble holds the potential for chaos and total destruction, as in the great flood pouring down through the windows of heaven and sweeping away the earth. This fragile bubble could be crushed by the overwhelming forces surrounding it, not just the primordial waters, but a panoply, a spectrum of powers that shape Hebrew cosmology. Beyond the firmament, centered directly above the temple in Jerusalem, was a terrifying realm of God's court, assembly of divinities. Seraphim guarded the throne. These weren't like the little naked cherubs with golden wings that fly in a bright blue sky. These seraphim were actually great fiery serpents covered in wings that thundered praise before the Holy One. You might imagine a kaleidoscopic vision 
a entheogenic experience of tens of thousands of deities, angels, spirits that serve the one throne. The throne was the ineffable presence, the great archetype at the center of all things. The Hebrew is tzavaot, which means hosts or multitudes or armies. So here, Bruce Chilton refers to it as a, quote, pantheon of fearsome, irresistible might, end quote. Pantheon, roaring waters, sapphire throne. Multitudes upon multitudes of spiritual entities fierce powers, surging energies, visionary potentialities for which the conscious self has no language. Like that moment as a child, you too first stood in the vast darkness, a forest meadow at night, or stood by a mountain lake, away from the white noise of human machines, that flat, sprawling sea of artificial lights, the low, offline brainwaves of half asleep humans laying entranced by the hundreds of thousands of glowing TV screens, peering through the hundreds of thousands of glowing, tangular windows. The moment you looked up and saw, and it saw you, the firmament, that spray of divine eyes, living points of light. burning in cosmic worship, singing that great symphony of the stars, vast and incomprehensible, singing in vibratory harmony with every cell of your body, Stardust, deep calling to deep, dust to stars, stars to dust, the surging feeling in that very moment. Thou art 
I am. Rising and falling. Cosmos. Self. Divine. We have lost this vision, this cosmology. We've lost the ability to hear the singing of the stars. Even the monotheism of Judaism and Christianity were still rooted in this pulsing array, this surging and animate vision of chaos and order of transcendence and inscendence. Yes, the picture of the world here is painted as entheogenic. It is as elaborate as the Olympian court of Zeus and East Indian cosmology. Chilton writes, quote, For Jesus, God's spirit was not just emanation and energy and transcended the philosophical ideas of divine intelligence and voice. It was a force so potent that it could take any shape it liked. The sun and the moon were dragged across the firmament by God's spirit in the form of a host of angels. And at each thin spot in the firmament there was an angel, guarding the potential breach or portal into the pantheon. These thin spots were stars, the divine protection Jesus and other Jews of his time saw when they looked into the sky at night." Theophany is a revelation of the primordial waters of the God image. Whether we understand it in the cultural context of the chariot or the throne, the Merkaba tradition, or some other expression of deity, religious revelation and ecstatic visionary experience are surprisingly diverse. Between schools of priestesses and prophets and shamans and seers, codified through very different semantic lenses of imagery in various religions and cultures. These images and symbols reveal the non-dual held in a diversity of opposites in the archetype. They reveal the wildness and the autonomy of these primeval powers, the potential for creation and destruction for chaos as well as order. What Jung understood to be the content of the collective unconscious what we call God. But perhaps what the Christian God image, even the cosmic Christ of historical theology has missed, is the older Jewish Kabbalistic and animistic roots of a vision that includes and unifies the tension of opposites inherent in a dynamic and pulsing cosmos. Our theology has neglected the prehistoric and thonic strata in the depths of this God image, where we are no longer just speaking of human-like metaphors and images, but primordial elemental forces of water, wind, fire, and earth, where we begin to see reflected in the God image the deep, crystalline structure, patterned in minerals, erupting in the greening life of plants, the pure, 
clean instinct of animals, the self-reflexive consciousness of human beings, the ritual memory of our ancestors, the transcendent vision of angels, all contained, all dissolved, all united in the Pleroma, the great pulsing center of divine resplendence. When we speak of cosmos, then, or cosmic Christ, we are actually moving beyond the theological categories of transcendence and immanence. We're moving beyond the philosophical understanding of evolution and emergence. We are passing through the great flood directly into the chaotic storm, into the center where there is a throne room for which there are no words. Paul speaks of his own passage through the veil in his seminal ecstatic visionary journey, a revelation of which he crossed over into the third heaven and was caught up into paradise, where he, quote, heard things that are not to be told that no mortal is permitted to repeat, end quote. Jesus perceives these heavens torn open, ruptured in the midst of his vision. He believed that the panoply of spiritual power surrounding God was pouring, was surging through the tear into the world, but the spirit didn't appear as a mighty celestial being, a seraph, but as a bird descending, hovering over him and alighting as it once had brooded over the primordial waters of creation in the beginning. Chilton writes, quote, We can imagine how Jesus would have prepared himself repeatedly to receive God's Spirit as he stood naked on the banks of the Jordan or by a pool in one of its feeder streams. End quote. This cosmic and elemental spirit flooding down into earth through a dove, a bridge between the realms of heaven and earth, a river between masculine and feminine, dark and light, sun and moon joined in the babbling eddies and swirling currents of the river that claimed his own flesh, his body. If you like what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash mythic Christ. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash mythic Christ. Mythic Christ offers online community for exploring the mythic structures of story, archetype, dream, and the deep imaginal realm, supporting the awakening of individuals who are sensing a collective longing and a desire to rewild these divine images in the sacred, spirit-breathed ground of the natural world. Patronage levels start for as low as $6 a month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site, including early access to new podcasts, downloadable guided practices for deepening your own journey, complimentary mentoring and DreamWork sessions, early notification of courses, programs, discounts, and more. Thank you for supporting Mythic Christ. 
This episode references several books, articles, links, movies, and more, which you can check out in the show notes of this podcast episode. Special musical credit for this episode goes to Two Hawks and his powerful album, Sends a Voice. Also to Nils Aslak, Velke Apaa, Johan Anders Baer, Essa Kutulainen, Seppo Pakunainen, and they're offering the voice of the Sami through their album Winter Games. Hope you enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, may you be open to the presence of mystery, the unfolding of the great dream that has dreamt you, determined to live the one line of poetry that is yours to live. Amen and awen, may it be so.